like, how can you say that there's only one when it's digital, right? And you'll hear this phrase that the people in this world like to use where they talk about an artwork being provably rare, okay? And so that is the important thing that has been accomplished. Digital scarcity it is not false. I promise you that when I die, I am not making any more arts. Welcome to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Join me, Tony Tran. And me, Bill Robertage. Along with our amazing guests, as we explore how people's inner artist and inner engineer present themselves in their technical careers, in the art they create, and most importantly, in living creative lives. Our guest today is Benton C. Bainbridge. Benton is best known as a pioneer of visual music performance. He creates media art and visual performances with handcrafted image processing systems. Benton collaborates with diverse artists, including the Beastie Boys, with whom Benton VJed two world tours. He is faculty at the School of Visual Arts, MFA Computer Arts Department, an artist in residence at Andrew Friedman Home in the Bronx. We discuss the nature and nurture of growing up in a family of both artists and engineers, how engineering and bleeding edge technology have often been a part of art, artists, and art traditions, choosing freedom versus stability while making a living as an artist, how the emerging NFT technologies could be used to sell, collect, and trade digital and ethereal art, and how an oscilloscope led to a Beastie Boys world tour. Well, we are very happy to have Benton C. Bainbridge on the show with us today. Welcome, Benton. Hello. Thanks for having me, Bill. Thanks, Tony. Welcome. So your experience is quite interesting to us on the show because uh, you've collaborated with a, a wide range of artists. You're a uh, mixed media full-time artist who really uses technology to make art. And uh, so this kind of blending of those two, a little bit different than other people we've had, but you do video sculptures, you do moving pictures, immersive installations, and you use kind of salvage gear, video synthesizers, so pretty pioneering stuff. And you and I met several years ago at a very quick social gathering. I think it was, you know, out for drinks or something. And I barely remember lots of people around but you had a little uh, a piece of technology, a little video unit with you. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Like a person who travels with a, a little video sidekick. <laughs> uh, so that always stuck in my mind. Also a uh, faculty at School of Visual Arts. So I think your experience around this intersection, this mindset and this exploration that we're interested in about artists and technology and the, the need to create and why we create and how we create and how we use these things. Uh, will be great. Maybe to start a little bit is, is kind of a little bit of your origin story. We've talked about it, but I, I find some of that really kind of uh, fascinating. Yeah. So the very title of your podcast, The Artist Engineer, is not only near and dear to my art, but it's really my origin stories, not just as a, you know, a professional artist slash engineer, but basically it's my whole life. My Mother is an artist. She works in photography. She's a writer and she does quilting, very cool experimental quilting. And my father was a computer and electronics engineer. 
And as he used to say, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree or the hybrid tree, whatever it is, I guess they grafted some branches together there. And so really nature and nurture, that's the story of my life is uh, wearing, you know, alternating between the artist cap and the engineer cap, but always in service uh, of the goal of creating, of making artworks. And uh, basically I would say that uh, I also spend a lot of time myself thinking about those roles, the artist, the engineer, and where there's overlap and where there's differences. You mentioned something I've never heard of, experimental quilting. Is that something we should know about? Yeah, so my mother is a quilter and a long line of quilters in my family. It's a, you know, quilting is, is done around the planet, but it's an especially strong tradition in New York State, Ohio State, and Pennsylvania. There's a, you know, a long, long American tradition of quilt making that's where there's a common vocabulary in the shapes and the patterns, and they all have names. And you can kind of, if you know what you're looking at, you can kind of identify these abstract patterns and know where the quilt was likely made and when. But my mother, she, started traditionally, but then she has taken her quilt making into very wild, different experimental directions, doing things that I had never seen done before, including for years, she's been actually putting her fabric through inkjet printers, right? Just to see what would happen. And like, <laughs> you know, now that's, uh, I've seen more people doing that, but my mother was was doing that decades ago. Yeah, and she also does, with her quilting, she'll do things like do a diaristic quilt, right? Incorporating ditched words or, or pieces of fabric that actually uh, have specific memories for her or are part of her story. She does a quilting that is uh, imagistic, right? She'll do things like do a, a landscape made out of fabric. And also even when she's doing stuff that you might point at and say, oh yeah, that's a quilt. Like she's absolutely breaking from those traditional patterns that um, you know, are rooted in, in many generations of uh, tradition. So experimentation and blending different fields is really a part of what you saw growing up. But also the engineering as well, right? So my father would a, he had four patents for embedded computers, micro microcomputers, right? So he was a pioneer exploring how can we put computer control into machinery to either automate processes or do safety checks or whatever it might be, right? He, for he would just teach me as we were. He was maybe driving me to. Uh, the model rocket club meeting or the Cub Scouts, whatnot, he would just, you know, I would just say, well, what is this hexadecimal thing? What's the point of sticking letters in with numbers? And he would say, oh, well, this is a way to, you know, have fewer characters uh, represent numbers. So, you know, because binary, you need a longer string to represent all the numbers. So my father would 
teach me a lot of the basics of, of electronics engineering and computer engineering just in the course of my insatiable curiosity as a kid of like, why? Why is this being done this way? So I like it. I like it. Yeah. So you're definitely like the hybrid, like a, like a cosmic crisp apple or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just interested before we, we move off of your parents, because they're great. You had this front row seat to these two people who, who had a lot of similarities, right? There's the experimentation, there's put, building on something from the past, but pushing it out a little further. But, but then also for maybe different reasons, right? And, and that's what I find always kind of interesting where maybe these, an artist and an engineer diverge, the purpose of your, what you're doing is. And you have any thoughts on that? Uh, and maybe even there and all in your, your, your own life, as you said, you've used technology, but very much create art, not to automate processes and other things, right? Well, Bill, I've been giving this a lot of thought since you reached out to me, like, where is that line between the artist and the engineer? And I, I guess I have, uh, so I, I also have a lot of art history in my origin story. That's maybe a longer story, but, you know, starting with my mother, giving me access to books about the history of art around the world. And one thing I have come to the conclusion that artists like Leonardo were, were not necessarily the exception, right? So there is an element of engineering and use of bleeding edge technology in a lot of art artists and art traditions, right? So you know, even if you're just looking at like artists figuring out which paints, uh, how to combine different, you know, substances that they would find from stones or minerals or plants or whatever to make different colors to be able to capture reality and in the full range of colors. You know, I think that there's, there's a tradition of artists be, having to, to wear that engineer cap to some degree. However, Having said that, in my family, there was definitely a line between artist and engineer. So interestingly enough, my father's father was an artist. <laughs> so my father's father, my grandfather, uh, was an acrobat. And he did, uh, he, he toured with circuses and later... Uh, when I was a kid, he had, he was a, a teacher of gymnastics. He had a tumbling group, the Bainbridge Tumblers. And so my father was always supportive, but I, I do remember that, <laughs> that when I told him, Hey, you know, I, I want to go to art school. You know, I want to pursue this for my life career uh, I think there was a, a moment where he was just kind of like, oh, no, my dad was an artist and now my son's going to be an artist. <laughs> right. Not again. <laughs> so I think, but, you know, later in, it, 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 he was, there were many times when my father would be uh, surprised that I had some technical knowledge that I could talk about things like, you know, how a television signal is made and why 
video runs, NTSC standard definition video runs at 29.97 because they, when they added color on top of the black and white signal, you started getting these false uh, colors because of harmonics in the signal. And my dad would just be like, you know, wait a second, you're talking like an engineer. I thought you were an artist. So in my case, the engineering, it's something I absolutely am fascinated by, like how things work, but it really was always in service of accomplishing some sort of creative goal, right? So I, you know, have to, I guess I would always be curious about how things work, but I certainly would not spend as much time on the engineering side of that artist engineer dual role if I didn't have to in order to accomplish things that I envision. Great. I, I, I love the Bainbridge tumblers. It's awesome. <laughs> Fortunately, and to your credit, have been able to make a living as a, as a full-time artist, which I think sometimes someone who has interest in both a trade-off, and we've heard that from several of our guests, you know, who were artists earlier in their life. And, and then they got to a point where it didn't seem like a stable or um, economically feasible space. And they had to kind of move into the technology space. They were still kind of using it, but they used it in a different way, right? But it was for to serve the, the, the more capitalist uh, system we live in. So, uh, so, so well done. Oh, thank you. I, well, you know, it's, it's a daily question, right? Like it's, uh, it's not like you just figure out your plan and then you're like, okay, now I'm set for life. I've got my plan. Um, especially when one's field is working with such a young technology. I mean, you know, uh, electronic moving image is, is quite young as an art form, right? You know, like a fine art or experimental art form, you can point to one artist and one year, 1963 is when Nam Chun Pak did the first uh, art show, a first showing in a gallery of TVs as art, right? Uh, so it is actually a, a very young medium and it continues to evolve uh, you know, today it continues to evolve. When we started this conversation, we just were having a, a little chat about how one year and two weeks ago, we no one even knew what Zoom was. And now, as you said, Bill, it's a, it's you know it, it's ascended to become a verb. You know, let's Zoom. So this this is clearly very evolving technology. I have, I have an idea of, of how to, to survive in a capitalist world today. Uh, maybe even a, a few, I, I have a little bit of a safety net, you know, for the near future, as far as I can kind of imagine where we're going. But the reality is I'm always trying to solve that problem, uh, just like everybody else. In, in the creative and the artist space, the way I see it from the outside is, it's much more of a, a gig economy. You know, you're getting kind of commissions and contracts. Is that accurate? Are you, are there spaces either in this new medium or um, other areas there are, I know in music, et cetera, to find like space, uh, uh, a steady source of income? Like what's, 
what are you seeing out there? Uh, is anything changing? To absolutely, I see things changing all the time. I've actually worn, I've worn the hats. I don't know. That's not that's the way to put it. I've actually survived as an artist in different ways. Um, I do not come from a wealthy family. I've come from a firmly middle-class background. And so in my case, I, even in college, I had to work to afford uh, college, the costs of, of school, undergraduate school, and you know the cost of living. So working in my field is something that I always strove to do. There are some people who uh, very consciously choose to make their money and uh, their means of survival from something completely different. And I respect that, right? Because the idea being that like, if you have spent all day staring at a screen, for example, right? Then the last thing you might wanna do is to go to your studio or your home or whatever and stare at it some more <laughs> in order to, to be creative, right? But in my case, my feeling has been that uh, I'm a hands-on artist. The, the nature of my work is that I want to create by getting my hands dirty, getting my hands on the gear, and, and playing with it and manipulating it. And the more I play with it, the better able I am to realize whatever vision might come into my head, right? So I made a conscious choice uh, as soon as I was able to always try to make my money somehow in some sort of area that at least used had overlap with that skill set right and the thing i'll say is that um for you know even though there are some pluses i i do think i also feel that the stability is is actually more important for a lot of people and um to some degree like my time as a freelancer just kind of contributed to what I now see as a problem, right? Uh, I actually think that, you know, if, if a company is given things like tax incentives and, you know, use of, um, you know, things that are truly part of the commonwealth, right? Like, you know, air, water, land, et cetera, that they owe in return you know, some if if they're if they're contributing to taking from the stability, right? The, then they in turn have a responsibility to employees, and so I'm actually not as fond of the of the gig economy anymore. And finally, I'll add, I'll end on that. In my case, there's been a radical change in the past four months. Let me see. December, January, February, March. Yeah, basically the past third of a year, there's been this, this radical shift where we've gone up yet another level of awareness and um, you know, the popular acceptance of the kind of art that I and, and my colleagues do. 
Um, and that might be, we'll see, it's a little bit early to tell, but what that might mean in, in, for me and some other artists is that perhaps, you know, it's going to change, again, our relationship with, you know, with surviving in this capitalist world. I don't know if it's a pivot or a follow-up to what we were talking about, but on one of our earlier conversations when we were kind of just meeting, we were discussing something that's now kind of in the news, the the kind of explosion all of a sudden of NFTs or non-fungible tokens, which kind of decentralizes the the art world a little bit, as, as you discussed. So I don't know, is, is that the change or is there, is there something else going on too that you want to talk about first? Again, maybe for our audience as well, because I've read a couple articles on it, trying to understand NFTs. Maybe uh, a little definition of that world is it, before we go and even your take on it. Okay, great. Well, yes, n- indeed, Bill. I'm referring to the the sea change that has been catalyzed by, again, kind of reducing it to one artist. Uh, Beeple by Beeple having great success within the uh, NFT platform, using the NFT platform. So that is the change that might be, uh, you know, changing things for me and for other artists like me who work in this very ethereal form of art, right? So the way an NFT works is that it uses a set of technologies that are used in cryptocurrencies, right? So the Bitcoin, most best known cryptocurrency, is basically a way that a bunch of people who uh, are sharing computers that function as nodes on a network all they're doing is they're basically keeping the books, right? So, you know, the way money works, um, conventional money works is that you have these people who are taking care of the money for you, right? So your bank keeps track of how much you deposit and how much interest you earn and how much you withdraw and the fees that they're charging you. Um, and as well, you know, interest fees that they might charge you if you take out a loan. That is a centralized way of keeping track of money. And a decentralized system is just a way that anybody with a computer that's on this network, right, can participate in the keeping of these, you know, tracking of these financial records. So if I have uh, one Bitcoin, right, and then I want to pay you, Tony, for something, right? And I send that one Bitcoin to you. Um, If you don't have a way of keeping track of it, I could simultaneously say, (laughs) I'm going to be really sneaky. And I'm going to also send one Bitcoin to Bill at at the same time. uh, And then I'll, out of that, I'll have two, I don't know, cars or whatever, right? Um, So this cryptocurrency Bitcoin and others, they solve what's called the double spend problem in a way that doesn't require one central government institution or bank to take care of those books. So when 
I and some other artists who were in a collective in 2009 heard about Bitcoin, like we were just like, oh my gosh, this like this immediately, obviously this solves the problem of like digital art, right? So, you know, you, if you accept that this is a valid way to prevent people from spending that, that Bitcoin twice, right? Then absolutely you could apply that to art. And so um, in short, that's basically a, a simplified version of what's happening with these NFTs. So just so I'm trying to see where this is going to lead. Maybe you've given this some thought. So as I understand it, what you're saying is these tokens identify what you said is one piece of artwork. And then I'm trying to tie it to other digital things that we know about buying songs online. You know, there's, there's are MP3 files that are digital. Does that mean, for example, are we going towards a, a world where the rights of the song, you know, could be bought by the artist, artist just like it is now, and it doesn't have a middleman or does each copy of the song that's being sold, maybe millions have its own token. So I understand where we're trying to end up is there's no middle person, a music studio that might be in the middle of taking ownership away from the artist. Where do you see it's going in the future? These tokens, how, is, how would it be used in kind of the areas that we're familiar with? Yes, you're right. There is the possibility of eliminating the uh, middleman, right? doing uh, direct transactions between artists and patrons, for example. The reality is that, and we're seeing a lot of this right now, that for some reason, us human beings, you know, we just really like those middlemen. I don't know why it is. I, I honestly don't understand. And, you know, so significantly, Facebook, right? Just as an example, right? That is something that is built upon a potentially completely open system where the internet allows us all to have our own web pages directly interact with one another, right? But for some reason, and, and I know a few of them, instead, many of us, not me, but many of us choose to use Facebook instead as a way to connect with one another. Uh, so that's actually what's happening is uh, you're right, Tony, that, that the technologies hold the promise of uh, disintermediation, of removing that, you know, intermediator who's doing things like saying, oh, you know, that's a great artist and we can make a, a lot of money by promoting that artist and then we'll take our significant chunk out of that and the artists will get a lot less. So yeah, there's the technologies are capable of it. In fact, a lot of what you are hearing about in the world of NFTs is actually the same, uh, the same players who were there before, the Christie's, the Sotheby's, the Damien Hirst's, et cetera, just you know, adopting this, this new way of doing what they were already doing. Yeah, the internet analogy is, is, is perfect because that's, that was exactly the promise and the design of the early internet was to be totally non-centralized. I mean, it was the goal where those people, the middlemen, saw opportunity, right? The, the AOL, the Facebook, and, and then it all consolidated in ways that aren't so great anymore, right? 
it, it's quite interesting because it also brings it to scale. So that's the other thing that it does. It brings it to masses that maybe wouldn't have been able to get there. And maybe that will happen too with this NFTs and art, which it goes to a certain level of scale and you still have your huge players, but hopefully it doesn't squash out the other artists and people who want to be more independent, right? You cannot underestimate it. There's, you know, for over and over and over again, you hear people saying like, it's false scarcity, right? You know, like, how can you say that there's only one when it's digital, right? And you'll hear this phrase that the people in this world like to use where they talk about an artwork being provably rare, okay? And so that is the important thing that has been accomplished. Digital scarcity is not false. I promise you that when I die, I am not making any more arts. Okay, it is any art that is created by an actual human as opposed to an artificial uh, agent, right? Or a machine may be set into motion by an artist, but nonetheless, you know, a machine. Anything that's made by a human being is, is by definition scarce. So rather than creating artificial scarcity, what these systems are working towards is finally acknowledging what was always true, that these creations are unique. And not only Mark Zuckerberg should get the benefit from the appreciation, the sharing, and the patronage of digital creation. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Maybe uh, we'll pivot to maybe one last question maybe a little bit looking back and a little bit looking forward. One is uh, one of the people or people that you collaborated with or the Beastie Boys doing video artwork for their tour. And Tony, I'm both fans, so would love to hear a little bit about that. And then what's next? What, what are you working on right now? And, and what are you looking forward to? Yeah, so Beastie Boys are a group that was like kind of part of my life for a while. Um, and to be perfectly frank, I, for years, I was a little bit skeptical <laughs> about Beastie Boys. <laughs> so uh, I was a student at New York University, Tisch School of the Arts. I was in the undergraduate film and television program. And when I arrived as a freshman at NYU, the Beastie Boys were hanging out in my dorm all the time, okay? Not, and when I say in my dorm, I don't just mean they were in the building. I mean, I was uh, on the same floor as Rick Rubin. He was down the hall on the other side of the hall. And so we used to see them all the time. Uh, you know, they... I would look out my window and see them playing basketball in the court yard of our uh, dorm. And, you know, and they were always hanging out and whatnot. And I've, I've got to be honest, like, you know, I did not see it coming. I mean, to me, it was just hilarious, <laughs> right? Like, you know, right. who are these three boys who like take their rap stars and like, and so, um, and then they, you know, and they had, I, I liked the, the early 
music, like, you know, Cookie Puss was a really cool track. And, you know, and they also were very much, you know, of course they were like punk rock musicians as well before they were doing the hip hop thing. So it's not that I didn't like them per se, but I, I truly did not see it coming. So fast forward years later, I was doing these underground uh, electronic music and video events uh, called Unity Game. I was like the uh, resident video artist in this thing that David Linton created. And my father, uh, I, went, I went home one day and I was like, dad, you're not using that oscilloscope over there. Let me take that please and to do you know my video art with and he looked at me like I was crazy you know he's like why why would you want to do that and why would anybody want to look at that you know and so so fast forward a few years later and someone who had actually been an intern with that project an intern with unity game she was at that time actually doing photography for beastie boys and her fiance was doing the stage and lighting design. And Beastie Boys said to him, Spike Brandt, hey, we, you know, we want you to find us a VJ who works with oscilloscopes. So uh, yeah, so Beastie Boys, like uh, I did a demo for them and, uh, and then I ended up working with them. Very cool, very cool. And I, I think you are not alone of the people who saw them early on who were like, is this real or a joke or whatever? And, and now all these years later, uh, has, has aged pretty, pretty well. So that's great. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So correct. Oh yeah. I, I have to say there, my, I have great, great respect yeah. for, for Beastie Boys. You know, they absolutely, not only were they innovative, they are just really, hardworking, uh, dedicated artists as well. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, that's some past stuff. What's, uh, what's happening right now and what are you, what are you looking forward to? So right now I'm working on a show for the young museum in San Francisco. I have a collaboration called Rue Bainbridge and we're a duo that does live improvisation of sonic and visual art. So my collaborator, Griffin Rue, he plays musical saw and sings and plays, you know, synthesizers and whatnot. And then he plays this all through effects pedals to do things like looping and layering and otherwise transforming the sounds that he makes. And then I am doing these live light drawings where I'm uh, playing with a hacked video game console is this antique video game called the Vectrex. And I hack it so that I can send in signals from these modular synthesizers that I put together uh, and then program essentially by patching. And then we play live and just kind of responding to each other in the moment and, um, you know, and our audiences or spaces. And so we're, we're premiering a new work this coming Wednesday with the Young Museum Virtual Wednesdays. So that's terrific. Certainly share that with us and we'll share it out into our network on Wednesday. That would be great. Any last uh, thoughts, questions, Tony? Uh, no, 
It's uh, exciting to hear what's coming. Benton, you have, I see great timing, always early, <laughs> early in, in the wave of things. So really, really uh, wonderful stuff. Thanks, Tony. Well, uh, I, hopefully my timing is, uh, is good. Sometimes I, I feel like I'm way off. <laughs> People will catch up. Well, thank you very much. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can email us at podcast at theartistengineer.com if you have show ideas or want to follow up with feedback or just want to say hi. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes at www.theartistengineer.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes review as it helps the show get discovered by more people. And also hit the subscribe button.